Holy cow, folks, do I have some exciting news for y'all. By the way, this is the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, welcome to the show today. Yeah, so so the news is um, kind of under the radar at my day job, Athletic Brewing. We have been producing a documentary that we just released to the world. Uh, well, just the trailer. And we're getting ready to take the tour or the film on tour to a couple different cities around the country. And I would love absolutely love for the listeners of this show to come out and support. So if you're going to be around the weekend of April 23rd, uh, we're going to be in Denver. Then the following weekend, the 30th, we're going to be in Portland. And the weekend after that, we're going to be in Seattle. And it is a film about Jason Hardrath's story. The guest today, Jason, if you remember, we had Jason on the show back in early 2020 uh, when he was in pursuit of a hundred fastest known times, as they're called. That was episode six oh four, and he only had like thirty something then, like thirty two or something, and they were crazy. Some of these fastest known times, and if you don't remember what that is, that's just basically doing a route faster than anyone's ever done it. Whether that's the whole Appalachian Trail or something short, you know, five miles long, um, on a trail near your home. Uh, They all have fastest known times, or a lot of them do, and uh, if they don't, you can go establish one, but Jason wanted to be the first person to get 100 FKTs, as they're called, and when we talked to him, and not just easy ones, these are some huge ones, and so uh, we were following the story over at Athletic Brewing, my day job, um, and when he was approaching 100, we're like, what are you going to do for your 100th, and he decided to do the unthinkable. He climbed a list called the Washington Bulgers, which is a hundred mountains, the highest hundred peaks in Washington state as his 100th fastest known time. So we decided to uh, work with the film crew, uh, a production company out of Salt Lake City, Wizard Media, to produce a documentary about this adventure. So uh, it started with Adventure Sports Podcast, uh, and it kind of transitioned over to Athletic Brewing. Uh, Jason is one of our pro athletes over at Athletic Brewing now, and it's just been crazy to watch this whole thing unfold over the last two and a half years nearly. And I would love to have some of y'all come out there. If you would like to come, we're going to be giving away two tickets to ASP listeners uh, for each event. So um, if, oh, and also I forgot to mention Klamath Falls, Oregon is one of them. That's Jason's hometown. So if you happen to be there April 21st, let us know. We'd love to get you some tickets. But yeah, for the rest of the screenings, uh, in the show notes, there's a link too. If you want to just buy some, it'd be awesome. It's 10 bucks a pop for each event. Uh, you know, goes to, you know, that we just wanted to make sure people had a little skin in the game so they come check it out. But I know this is a super long intro, but it's really big news. And I wanted to make sure all of you were aware uh, that I'm going to be there. I'd love to meet you. And I'm going to be doing some uh, some giveaways. I'm going to be doing the introduction, introducing Jason. We're going to have a host in each city that's going to be interviewing him afterwards. I already interviewed Jason at a private screening over the weekend in New York, uh, and it was fantastic. So we're taking the show on the road. So come see us. Links uh, are in the show notes. And please come out, support, bring people. And uh, yeah, if you want one of those two free tickets... First two people to email me about it, uh, get the free tickets. Mason at adventuresportspodcast.com. All right, let's jump into Jason's story.
Jason, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here, Mason. Uh, I'm I'm super excited for the reason that I'm here. Um, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, man. It took a couple took a couple uh, uh, reschedules to get this to to happen, but I'm glad we made it happen. Uh, to be fair, it, it allowed me a few extra naps to recover from, from okay. this thing. So no worries. <laughs> Good, man. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to take one away from you now. But, um, well, you know, I, I, I teased it a little in the intro, but but you recently did um, one of the craziest things I've ever heard, which is, I, I mean, I, I, I know you've said it in your mind and tons of people have said it, but you climbed 100 peaks, the 100 highest peaks in Washington State called the Bulgers List, as your 100th fastest known time. And it, it's a it's an adventure within an adventure, or a crazy goal within a goal, and you recently got it done. And so the first thing I want to ask is just, how does it feel right now? What does it feel like to just know that you're done with it? I mean, on the one hand, um, it feels really good, uh, really satisfying, on, on the other hand, it's like I've been around the block enough to know that no journey is about the finish. It's it's about the life you get to live during the process. And I've been absolutely in love with the adventures I've thrown myself in into over the whole process of this 100 FKT journey. It was everything I hoped it was and more. Um, I've developed as an athlete. I've seen more places in the world. I've done some wild, crazy things on mountains and canyons, on on rock, on snow, on ice. Um, it's been phenomenal. And then to do these hundred peaks, uh, as you said, for for my hundredth FKT, and these hundred peaks that had never been done in a continuous push style. Like this has been the Bulgers list has been like a, a tick list that people have viewed in this lens of, oh, it's something you tick off over a number of years while you're, you know, working a job because these peaks are so hard to get to logistically. Um, you know, you have to take boat rides in to get to the trailheads for some of them. And then it's still, you know, a 20 mile hike to get to the base of the mountain and then a bushwhack up from the trail to get to the climbing and then a, a scramble or a rock climb after that, or maybe there's glacier travel in between that bushwhack and so you got to rope up to avoid falling in a crevasse. And it's just like, these things are not just drive to the trailhead, walk on a trail. Yeah. You're at the summit. Um, and no one had ever like taken this undertaking on as like, okay, I'm going to do a continuous push. I'm not going to go home from first mountain to last mountain. Um, and so this, there was this element of like, you know, standing on the solid ground of the fitness and the skills that I've built over the years of doing this stuff, but then like reaching into the chaos, the unknown, like, can this be done? Is this, you know, 98 of these peaks I'd never climbed before. Like this is, this is genuine unknown space. Is it, what if it's harder than I expected? What if it does break me? Like, you know, what if the terrain is harder to navigate? What if the bushwhacking is so heinous that I can't cover the ground that I think I can cover? Um, what if, what if the climbing is hard? What if the glaciers are impassable because of, uh, the melt? Um, there's just so many, so many unknowns, you know, and then, you know, on top of that, what if a fire breaks out and closes, you know, access to one of the peaks or one of the peaks down? Like there's this huge burden of unknown with this project to, to, can it even be done? Some people, some people who climb these mountains didn't think I could do what I was setting out to do. 
And so there was this, this big question of doubt, to, this burden of doubt to carry through the process of the whole thing. And that made it all the better um, can imagine. <laughs> to, to just be doing this thing that had all of these technical elements, but then had this insane logistical process to unlock the proper sequence to do these peaks and to access each of these peaks in, in the most efficient way and to do them in an order that avoided like catastrophic, you know, things such as like uh, a fire did break out and closed down some of the peaks, some of the access to peaks. But luckily I'd done them in the correct order that I was already done with the peaks that were in that higher fire danger area. So I, I didn't get, you know, my effort didn't get shut down by it. Um, so yeah, just like bearing the load of all of that and doing the planning on the front end for, for like six months um, to like come up with the best course of action and then just stepping out there and making a ton of game time decisions about how to do stuff and micro route finding micro beta on different things. And um, yeah, I mean, there was fifth class rock climbing, there was glacier travel, like I mentioned, there was some absolutely heinous bushwhacking, insane numbers of mosquitoes getting stung by wasps. I mean, it was, it was a legitimate adventure and a legitimate challenge. Um, and I can't think of a better way to get a hundredth FKT than to do a hundred peaks in a way that they'd never been done before. So, so yeah, I guess that there's my intro of what I did. I, I, I climbed <laughs> the Washington boulders and it was a for real adventure. <laughs> Jason Hardrath. It was a for real adventure. That's, that's uh, <laughs> no kidding. Um, adventure of a lifetime. For, for so many of us, uh, venture of a lifetime we'll never experience because most of us will never do this. For, for you, you know, you're obviously experiencing this, but so much of it seemed so unlikely. What, what percentage would you give yourself of finishing it before you started? Like, you know, I know you're confident, I know you're planning, you've been planning for years um, and, and hard planning for this, you know, pretty dialed in for months. Did, did you give yourself a likelihood of doing this or, or, or unlikely? I, I don't like to think like that. Like, I just like to show up and, and control what I can control with, you know, my preparedness and with my execution and, you know, with my fitness. But I, part of, part of what I was experiencing on the front end of this was having to manage the emotions um, of just how likely it was that something was going to go wrong. Right. That I was going to come across an, an impassable glacier because it was in too bad of condition to to safely be passed or that a fire was going to break out with how crazy fire seasons have been now with everything warming up. It's like, man, what if it's like fire season starts in June? And it almost did. It was like the first fires broke out crazy early, even though Washington had a a, a near record snow year. The heat wave that rolled through that I had to climb through the middle of it melted the snow so fast that their fire season still started early. So just like embracing that, like that knowledge, like, yeah, this, this is very unlikely to succeed and it's unlikely to succeed. Even if I do everything right. Um, even if I show up and I am fitness wise strong enough and I execute with great precision, I could still just like wake up and read the news and it's like, Oh, you know, such and such is on fire. Land is closed. Uh, can't legitimately finish this. So I've, I've got to move on to something else and come back later. 
so yeah, I mean, to, to just embrace that as a part of the experience from the beginning and to still step into the fray of it and be willing to like yard out huge, you know, day one was 47 miles with well over 10,000 feet of elevation gain. So it's like, these were, some of these were really big days and hard days and not every day was an ultra marathon. I mean, more, I would say the average day uh, floated somewhere around the 15 mile mark, 16 mile mark with somewhere between um, 7,000 and 10,000 feet of elevation gain. But then you have to take in, into account with that, that there was lots of moving in off tra trail terrain or poorly maintained trails or talus fields, uh, you know, boulder hopping, loose scree, uh, glacier travel, or uh, scrambling on third, fourth, or fifth class terrain. So it wasn't like 15 miles of walking on the road or walking on the trail even, even walking on a rough trail, like it was finding your own way and choosing the right ridgeline or right goalie, lots of decision-making and route finding. Um, so that kind of 15 miles with, with, uh, that kind of gain. And some of the big days were between 20 and 40 miles. Um, with, I think my biggest day had close to 15,000 feet of elevation gain and just kind of knowing that it's like, okay, I'm going to do this today. And then I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to do it again. I jokingly said that this, this was a process of me learning how to move like an old man <laughs> because I would have to make these decisions like, okay, how many times am I landing on my left foot while hopping over trees, like down trees? Like, am I making sure I alternate which feet? Cause I don't want to stress fracture three weeks from now, you know, um, it, you know, normally with like a four and five day effort, uh, you know, most of my, my big FKTs were between two and four days, um, leading up to this. It's like, you can write a check that your body can't cash at that distance. Cause you can just be wrecked for the next two or three weeks and just like muddle your way through while you recover at work or whatever. Um, but with this effort, it's like, no, I'll still be out here three weeks from now. So I can't make any decision that has a cascading domino effect that can affect, you know, my performance or an injury, you know, cause an injury down the road. Um, so like a thousand micro decisions about pacing and about how to step over objects or move through certain terrain that could have impact on the body. And, you know, all these, all these like decisions throughout any given day that were like taking into perspective the, the next three, four weeks, um, but still putting out, you know, weeks that I think one of my weeks was 124 miles and, uh, 59,000 feet of elevation gain. And again, you know, remembering like that, those numbers by themselves are insane, but then you're like, oh yeah. And a bunch of that is schwacking through, you know, bushes and trees that you can't even see the ground in front of you and, um, hopping over downed trees on, um, you know, poorly maintained trails and climbing on talus and rock and loose terrain. So it's just like, it was this wild undertaking where it's like, you can't, you couldn't ever take the whole thing in your mind at once. Cause it was just so impossibly much out in front of you. It was like in my mind, and I've had a lot of practice with doing this with the things I do, it was broken down to the challenge that was right in front of me, the process that was right in front of me, the approach, the, the, the main climb of the day, or if there was a glacier that I had to cross, like all of these little minute things that were still like multiple hour processes, say to like cross a glacier. Um, but, much more digestible and executable, much more intermediate. And that was what my mind 
fixated on and found a sense of play in like, oh yeah, I get to cross this glacier I've never crossed before. I wonder how we're going to navigate through that series of crevasses or, okay, I'm going to climb this ridge line. Like, ooh, it looks like there's going to be some crack climbing style movements or some face climbing movements um, or it's blocky or it's slabby and, you know, dealing with the, the feelings and the strengths and the weaknesses in my climbing skill in that regard. And so just letting my mind be preoccupied with the sense of play and challenge within what was right in front of me rather than even thinking about necessarily the entire day, let alone the entire project. And then thinking about the project as a whole, I broke down groups of mountains into sort of their own perceived expeditions, if you will. So it was like, okay, this group of six is an outing and this group of three is a push and these two go down in a day. And so everything was kind of broken down into these different like puzzle pieces that could fit together in different ways or go in a certain order. And yeah, I spent, month, spent months planning out with multiple people uh, what sort of link-ups went efficiently and which ones should be avoided because it was you know just too slow moving. It wasn't worth it. Um, it was just better to say, like, do separate pushes to the car and back rather than trying to link, link them together because of the type of terrain that was between them. You got any interesting stats about those links? Like, was there, what was the most peaks you did in a day or how long were you away from the support vehicle or the van? For the longest. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Um, so there were pushes that were six days away from the car, I believe. Five days away from the no car. Kidding. Um, that was when we took the boat into Stahican and Holden. So yeah, like that one, it was, we got off at Holden. That was the really hot day of the heat wave through the Pacific Northwest. It was like 117 degrees as we hiked up this exposed road for 12 miles. And oh man, that's, that's burned so indelibly in my mind. I, I'm glad I had a background in doing, doing, playing around in Death Valley a bit. Cause I'd kind of learned the process of sort of dissociation as you're moving through the heat and you just kind of like almost feel like you exist down inside yourself away from just the sensory feelings of being really, really, really hot and just like marching up that road in that heat um, to get into our first peak for the day. Um, and just every time we crossed a seep or a, or a spring, just soaking down all of the clothes, all the clothing I had on to stay as cool as possible and like drinking a bunch of water straight from the springs um, and then, you know, moving on. But yeah, so like, that, that, and that was a crazy part of that push too, just the heat wave that rolled through and climbing through that. Um, but yeah, when it, you know, day one went and climbed that road and climbed Copper Peak. Uh, day two of that push, we climbed Bonanza, or excuse me, Martin Bonanza Dark. And the Bonanza Dark Traverse between those two is one of those like iconic connections. Um, it's uh, this razor ridge line for a mile between uh, Bonanza Peak, which is its own beautiful peak. Um, to begin with, with fabulous rock climbing to get to the top of and some glacier travel. Um, but then, yeah, this mile long ridge line. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Um, one, of, one of the sort of high pressure moments, if you will, of the trip was that we, we got to the top of Bonanza after tagging Martin. And we're like, okay, every report we've read of the you know Bonanza Dark Traverse they talk about it taking them six hours. And we look at the clock, it's like, we don't have six hours of daylight left. 
we can't have this take six hours. Like we've got to be really efficient and dialed on this traverse because we don't want to be up here on this exposed terrain, you know, doing rock climbing by headlamp. Like that would be really inefficient. And then we'd still have to do the massive bushwhack back down to the trail in the dark. Um, like at some point that's, you're just going to run out of gas and you're just going to get uh, benighted. So we just like got in a rhythm and put the pedal down on this epic traverse and flew across um, just, you know, just got in this rhythm where we're pivoting across different moves on the, on the ridge line, um, just kind of in this flow state, if you will, just finding the good rock, finding the good movements, finding the most efficient, easy movements, um, and ended up climbing the whole thing in three hours and 15 minutes and had daylight left to get across the glacier that we needed to cross to get to the bushwhack. We still ended up bushwhacking down in, in the dark, um, down this insanely steep <laughs> schwack where it was just like grabbing different trees, sort of falling between trees, if you will, <laughs> to like keep your momentum from getting too fast. And yeah, just get down to the PCT. That was like a 20, by the time we got down to the PCT, we were probably 21 hours in, close to 22 hours in. Um, and we we thought we were still about seven miles from camp. And this is where the story kind of gets gets funny. And this might be one of the funnier things that happened the whole time <laughs> is after this epic push and we're just exhausted. Like we've done this big push of these three peaks and this epic ridgeline traverse where, you know, to some degree, like you're a little bit gripped when you're you're that far off the ground. So like in a mentally focused state to do all of this. And then we survived this bushwhack down in the dark. And you know, that sensation when you're driving and you shouldn't be driving anymore because you're too tired and you're like nodding off and your head oh, yeah. jerking. It's that, but while you're walking. And so you're like, you put a trekking pole down and then suddenly you realize you're like falling asleep um, on that, like falling toward that trekking pole and, and like weaving back and forth off the trail as you like start to fall asleep on your feet. Um, and so finally my climbing partner and I, we just like look at each other. It's like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> this is it. And so we just dirt nap, just dirt nap, nosedive into the trail right there. Um, just with our thin, like bivy sacks. Um, and next morning there's a hello and it's Ashley who'd hiked in the other way on the PCT to set up camp, um, to meet us there so that we could kind of have a restock and a camp. Like, you know, at this point we're totally out of the food we had with us. So, you know, just dirt nap, no dinner kind of thing. And she's like, you're only a mile and a half from camp. <laughs> so it was like this, oh man, slept in the dirt. But at the same time, it's like, that was an impossible 30 minutes uh, when we were in the state we were in. So still kind of funny that we were so close yet so far away. <laughs> right. um, it was impossible to get to. <laughs> but yeah, that, that 30 minutes would have been an eternity. Um, there would have been multiple lifetimes hidden inside of that 30 minutes. <laughs> um, oh man. Yeah. And that's just one day. I just talked through one, one day there. Oh my gosh. Um, Out of 50 for folks that, that don't know 50 days, man, 50 days. That's averaging two peaks a day. What did you say your highest day was as far as peaks? Um, I don't think I had a day where I did more than five. I might've had one day where I did six, but I think it was just five. Just five. Okay. Yeah. Reasonable. Um, <laughs> reasonable, but yeah, I mean, 50, 50 days and some change, uh, your goal was 50 days when you started, correct? It was. My goal was 50 days. Um, the The previous record was 410 days. So it wasn't, I wasn't just in this effort to try to beat the standing record and just right. being happy with that. Like 
I wanted to, I wanted to truly and authentically push myself. And when I ran the logistics, it seemed like 50 days was sort of that possible, but next to impossible sort of where those two met each other. Um, if I'd chosen 60 days, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that would go even with a bunch of stuff going wrong and trying to choose something like 40 days. It's like, it would have to be the absolute perfect run with no need for rest. Um, no mistakes. Yeah. No, like doing laundry or anything like that. Just pure perfection to get anywhere nearer to the 40 day mark. So it was like, okay, 50 days, that's exactly where it needs to be. And to have come through all of the sub adventures that compile this adventure, all of the different peaks and all the different backcountry terrain and expeditions and all the planning and logistics to have all of that come together and to have done 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes. It feels really good. I'm very satisfied. It feels like hard work. Well done. I had to dig really deep to make it happen. I had to make a really hard final push with very little sleep on the volcanoes as I finished to make that happen. And so, yeah, I, I like, I'm really pleased with, with what I, what I left out there. And, you know, people have already asked me the question like, Oh, if somebody beats you, would you go out and do it again? No, I don't think I'd need to. I think, I think I did everything I needed to do here. Like I'm, I'm proud of my effort on these hundred peaks and, you know, I wanted to reach into that, that chaos and I wanted to like redefine how people perceive this. And like, it's been really fun to see how the mountaineering community in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle and, and Washington have reacted to this. It's been really positive. Um, that was something I was concerned about. Um, I wanted, I wanted to do it in a way that uh, people would be proud of and people would receive it well. And so it's been cool to have this hard work well done also be well received by the community. You know, people have written me things along the lines of that this is one for the history books and um, that it's that I've quantum leaped myself and that this is one of my most meaningful FKTs yet. Some have been so bold as to say this record's going to stand a long time, which, you know, I personally feel I have no business in agreeing or disagreeing with that. I did, I did what I needed to do. And I, I pulled out an amazing effort for such difficult peaks. That's enough for me. Like, I don't have to guess whether it will stand or not. I don't have to make claims about how tough I am. It's like, no, I, the number, the number stands for itself. I, I know that you're not one to kind of talk about giving up or really ever really quitting. Um, but was there a moment in this or a day or a, a series of days or a time that, just felt like, have I taken on too much here? <laughs> was there was there any experience like that for you? So um, right around day twenty four, um, I had a day that should have been an easy day, just like a, a eleven mile hike out to catch the boat, and then a, a boat ride out because just logistically it was the only way it would work that day. So it kind of became a rest day, and then it should have been an easy day to just like, okay, go grab a hotel and and get some air conditioning and some sleep after being in the heat for so long. And it was a day where I had to suddenly, as I got back to cell phone reception, suddenly the film crew that's trying to document this thing was like trying to coordinate with me. And they were trying to pick these days that were already like really stressful mountain pushes. 
And they already, it was already going to be difficult to like get permits for those. And they wanted to nail down a time. And it was like this really stressful thing where it's like, I don't know if I want, like, I don't get the permits on this. It's just, I can't agree to this. Like, I've got to figure out a way for this to stay 100% true to what I'm trying to do here, which is giving my very best effort to these hundred peaks and and absolutely leaving myself 100% emptied out at the end of this thing and still find a way to like, help this film crew get a quality picture for um for depicting the intensity and and the the scope and scale of this effort and that was like super stressful and like it you know to the degree it like turned my stomach upside down and then I still like it was a fiasco to end up getting a hotel that night and the pizza we ordered um apparently they were understaffed at the pizza place and so it never arrived and so at 10 p.m Ashley my girlfriend who was kind of playing the, the massive supportive role like she was a superhero during this thing, um, ended up having to like drive down there and pick it up herself. And so we don't end up getting the sleep we were supposed to get. Uh, don't get food in my body till way, t- way later than I should have. Stressed out from this trying to plan logistics for like, well, what peak should we do the next day and what order? And then, you know, now that we're not getting sleep, what should we do? And woke up the next day and my stomach was just totally upside down, like massive heartburn, massive indigestion, couldn't get food down. And it just stayed like that for the whole first half of the day. And just like these thoughts as I'm like marching and putting in this game to go tag four mountains that day, just like if I can't eat, like this could be the end. Just like not so much a giving up, but just like logically, my, you know, scientifically, if I can't put calories in and I'm expending 5,000 to 8,000 calories a day, at some point my body will just shut down. And just continuing to march forward into that with the hope that it's like, okay, at some point, usually my gut's been good to me. And so hopefully like when I chill out a bit and just get moving, I'll go back to where I can eat again. And, you know, sure enough, as I got about, about halfway through that day, um, finally was able to start eating and, and taking in uh, liquid calories again. And, you know, then had to play, you know, catch up for like the next two days because it's like I was already riding that edge of like pretty extreme weight loss. Like, you know, because you're moving for especially if it was a day where I was moving more than 15 hours, 14, 15 hours. It was really difficult to offset the calorie loss because you just can't consume as much as you're burning while you're moving. So then the game was, can I eat enough between, you know, the time I finish and need to go to bed? And then after I wake up before I leave to sort of offset some of that calorie deficit and on the, those really big days, you know, I mentioned that 22 hour day, it was like, that was definitely a day where I burned way more than I could consumed. And so on those days that pushed up toward 18 hours or 20 hours, it was like, I was burning, you know, a pound of fat is like about 3,300 calories. And there were easily days that I was probably about 3000 calories short of what I needed for that day on the bigger pushes. So I definitely got down to my fighting weight, uh, about three weeks in, which, you know, about 5% body fat and then, you know, fighting to maintain that. So, you know, this was one of those situations where not eating the first half of the day, it was probably a day where I consumed, uh, you know, I was probably at a 3000 plus calorie deficit for that day. And then feeling that the next days, right? Because your body doesn't like to not be nourished. So like, you know, carrying, carrying that little bit extra fatigue for the next few days because of not being able to eat as much uh, was noticeable. So that was probably one of the cruxes 
as far as something that wasn't, you know, external, something that was just happening internal, that was a really tough day. Plus it's not fun to push yourself hard when you have heartburn. Um, Pizza, pizza almost brought you down. Almost brought the <laughs> great Jason Hardrath down. Did you go back to that pizza place and say, yeah, no kidding. Look what you and almost did to me. So yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty wild. Um, yeah, definitely one of like the, the physical emotional cruxes of the trip, just like enduring that. Well, it might be over that one. That one was pretty big. Um, as far as a difficult moment, as far as anything else, like, and, and your question about like quitting, I don't know, for a long time, I've cultivated this mindset. And it's something that just felt right to me early on as an athlete, too, when you would see athletes like just without a real reason, drop out of a race or step off of a race course or whatever. For some reason that like from a young age just kind of bothered me. It's like, well, why don't why don't you just see it through, like see what happens? And it, I totally it, like it totally makes sense to me when a high performing athlete makes a decision to save their body for a bigger race in the future, if they're not having you know, a good outcome, like that makes sense. You want to train and race in the way you want, you want to for your championship. Okay. But on the other hand, it's like, there's, there are these people who show up to these ultra events, these hundred milers and, and bigger and smaller, like all these distances, even just, you know, five Ks who all they're doing is attempting to finish before the cutoff. Like there's no medals. There are no prizes. There's no prize money. There's no, no award. They're just trying to finish before the, the, the finish line shuts down. And that's, and they do that year after year. And to me, it was like this, there's a sense of respect that came like, well, you know what, even if I'm just having a bad day out of respect for those people, like there's three ways off of a course, one through the finish line, two, because I don't make a cutoff or three on a medical gurney. Um, like that's it three ways off. That's it. Um, and so because of that, like cultivated sort of mindset, it was the same thing with this. It was like, either I'm just going to continue finishing objectives. I'm going to have a major, you know, medical issue that stops me, or it's going to be a case of something external stops me, you know, a fire breaks out or the glacier is no longer passable. Like those were the only options. It wasn't going to be an option of, well, I'm just hurting really bad. So I'm going to stop because this hurts too much. And yeah, it just, it was, that was just normal. That was accepted as like the operating conditions, the water I swam in, if you will. So, you know, for example, I had uh, unexpectedly had a pair of shoes that the heel cup was like rubberized on. And so it was like a really rigid heel cup and they'd been fine for me on a bunch of other running things I'd done. In fact, uh, I wore them for a 56 mile FKT that I did right out of the box and had zero issues. Um, you know, which is something that's never recommended by anyone to just go bust out an ultra marathon in a pair of shoes that you just pulled out of the box. But like these shoes were good in that way for me. But with the amount of steep grades that I was climbing, when you're walking up steep hills, your foot is dorsiflexed so, dorsiflexed so far that your Achilles tendon is like a rubber band that's stretched to its max. And because of that extra tension, that heel cup design would just ever so slightly impinge the bottom of the Achilles tendon and like cause the tendon sheath and the tendon to rub against each other. And so it triggered this massive inflammation in my Achilles tendons. And, you know, at first, like 
I'd never had the problem with the shoes before. So I didn't put it together um, 100% right off the bat. And I was deep in the backcountry on the um, Lago group where there's a group of six, six peaks that you have to go uh, multiple days into the backcountry to get. And so I'm back there and suddenly every step is agonizing. Like you can't think about anything else level of pain each time I would take a step. And so my mind is running through what's going on here. And I'm like, okay, I could be tearing my Achilles tendon away from my heel bone. Like I could be causing an actual tear that, that, that would be a, a game ending situation. Like if, if I'm going to cause a catastrophic injury to my body that will, you know, risk my future of doing things I love, pull the plug. But my mind is running the sensations and I'm like, okay, like the shoes have been like rubbing on the back there a little bit. So I flipped the heel down on the shoe, you know, like we do when we're being lazy in the morning and we don't want to put our shoes on all the way. And we just walk on the back of our shoes and, you know, ever so subtly destroy them. So I just walked on the back of the shoe. The moment I put the back of the shoe down, no pain. So I'm like, okay, not tearing the Achilles tendon loose from the heel, totally a friction pressure issue with the shoe. So what did I do? I cut the backs, a big giant V off of the back of every pair of shoes I had. Cause it's like, well, this is the obvious issue. This is the obvious solution keep moving forward. Um, you know, and it's like pretty, pretty ridiculous solution. My, my climbing partner laughed at it. Like, cause I'm like chopping these shoes up, but it's like, this is what, this is what keeps me moving. And I never even thought twice about it. Like once I knew the solution, it just was what was going to happen. It was like a natural flow. Um, and so just things like that, where, when you just exist in this state of, well, as long as I see progress toward my goal, it doesn't matter what it feels like as long as, you know, like I said, I had my rules for like, I'm not going to do permanent damage to my future with this thing. And so as soon as I realized it wasn't causing a permanent, you know, damage type injury, it's like, well, obviously I'm just going to do what it takes. So I guess that's like somewhat captures some of the mindset. It's a difficult thing to fully articulate, I guess, but yeah. That's genius. <laughs> What a solution to come up with and, and to be, you got to be in tune. You got to be in tune with what's going on. Got to have the awareness uh, in your body and, and being willing to take that leap with what I assume are not very cheap shoes. It was a risk to take, you know? Yeah, no, it was a, it was a gamble. It was one that, you know, I have enough background in pushing my body and dealing with these like niggles and aches and pains that act like injuries um, with ways I've pushed my body in the background that I, I was, I was sure enough that I was right, that it was just totally worth it to, to take the gamble. So we talked about, um, kind of the crux from like an internal point of view where, how you were feeling the stress, uh, the pizza, the heartburn, all that, that's not even considering the actual crux on the route itself or what was, the hardest part of climbing a hundred mountains, uh, 98 of them, you said were on site, meaning you had never climbed them before. So many areas you'd never been so many mountains, of course, and different kinds of mountains. You mentioned like volcanoes, you had the, the cascades, the huge things like Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helen, those giant singular mountains on a landscape. And then you have like the razor edge saw teeth. That is the North cascades. What on the route? Was there any point on the route was like that was you know made you feel like can I do this or do I have the right skills or can I get through this or did it all you know pretty much come together as you went? 
So folks, this is part one of a part two conversation. We'll hear the other part next Monday. Uh, But in the meantime, go ahead and sign up to get tickets uh, to go watch Journey to 100 uh, with a live Q&A with Jason after the screening. Um, Be able to meet him in person. See me as well. Meet me in person if you want, uh, as well as we'll do giveaways. We'll have free athletic brewing available. Uh, It's going to be a great time. So Check out those links in the show notes. April 23rd is Denver, 30th is uh, Portland, and then May 7th is Seattle. And then also April 21st is Klamath Falls. I, I skipped that one, but that's the first one. All right. See ya later in the week. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.